Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Vibe podcast. My name is Afra Mansour and I'm the deputy editor of the Muslim Vibe. Today I am joined by Salim Qasim, the chief editor, um, Hasib Rizvi, who is the director and independent journalist, Najis Mubalari. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. Oh, right. So much enthusiasm. I see <laughs> Hi. <laughs> well, um, I mean, seriously, today's uh, topic is, is quite downheartening, so to speak. But um, just so you guys know, this podcast will be discussing um, three things, hopefully. So the dangers of aggressive street dawah, um, especially with the likes of dawah man. Majid Nawaz being listed on the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, reports as an anti-Muslim extremist. And of course, the legacy of President Barack Obama who we can't really say that any longer because we have Trump, so yay to Trump. But um, yeah, let's get right into this. So um, first and foremost, Dawah Man. Um, for those of you that don't know, Dawah is an Arabic word which means to invite or to summon someone, um, and it's often used to describe when Muslims share their faith with others, etc. Um, so Dawah Man, uh, do you guys want to share a bit of information so I don't seem like I'm just going to hate on this guy straight away? So, so Dawa Man, um, whose actual name is uh, Imran Ibn Mansur. Ibn Mansur. We share the same surname, by the way. I, I felt you guys so are related. Disgusted. I'm sure you're related. So disgusted, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's basically um, a self-styled YouTube uh, generation um, Muslim something something, who basically goes around on the streets giving uh, quote-unquote da'wah to non-Muslims um, often in very kind of you know chastising and very degrading ways uh, there's actually a very cringe-worthy video clip of him talking to some 14-year-old girls asking them why they're dressed up a certain way and <clears throat> do they want attention from men and just very like absurd uh, way of, of doing things um, in more recent uh, weeks he's taken it upon himself to expose the reality of Shia Muslims uh, which has caused a bit of a you know a uproar. shocking reality stuff that you didn't know has stuff you? stuff that we didn't know about Shias apparently um, so so yeah so th- that's been doing the rounds um, and that's why we're talking about him today the problem with Dawaman is that he comes out with things that obviously have no basis in truth so I mean if we look at the piece that was written uh, on the Muslim vibe and I will link you guys later um, Amir Webb suggests that this guy actually has no scholarly background. I mean, there is a huge issue with having a guy with no previous experience, with no formal Islamic or whatever education. This guy's walking around giving information like he knows what he's talking it's about. It's more dangerous when someone thinks that they're in a position to be able to not only share knowledge, um, because that's fine, right? You know, I can share knowledge, you can share knowledge, but feel so self righteous about what they know at that particular time. To even be able to then challenge some of the more you know senior shayukh within within the within the ummah um, to you know basically challenge them pretty much. Uh, so I think last year he called out uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, um, who's a reformed Salafist. So you know I'm guessing they're not the best of friends, um, and he's calling him out. He called out a couple of other sheikhs, and you know here's a video clip of him saying this, and here's a video clip of him saying this, and I challenge them, and I I plead with you brothers and sisters to not follow their deviation, and I don't know where this guy's getting his. He feels that he's credible enough to even challenge these people, and obviously we've seen this before. I mean, it's, he's not the only person within, I guess, the Muslim community to, you know, 
call other people out. But um, it's, it's, it's a worrying trend, actually. I think, uh, you know, as you said, on the point of challenging other sheikhs and other people in the Muslim world, it seems to be a new thing that people are doing, in, in the UK at least, where different schools are going up against each other and challenging each other. And I think the one thing that makes it very futile is the fact that both people are going into this with 100% conviction. If you're going to debate with someone, if you're going to discuss something with someone, you need to have somewhat of an open mind to actually for it to be a productive conversation that we can walk away from this and I might have gained something or you might have gained something. Whereas when these guys do this, they know they're but, right. But Dawa man's not even engaging in dialogue. It's just a one-man show. It's, it's a monologue. It's a monologue. And, and you know, I've heard his, uh, you know, last year, very upsetting, really. He, he made a video called The Reality of Who Killed... Uh, Imam Hussein or something like that in which he basically goes and says yeah the Shias killed Imam Hussein there was an hour long video and, and, and I remember just listening to it and I was just like so much historical fact was just completely re readjusted to suit this narrative that somehow Shias killed Imam Hussein and that's why they mourn every year because they regret it it's like the most absurd <laughs> rewriting of history um, that I've witnessed but this is becoming commonplace and I, and I think this is why we're discussing it because it does need to be challenged. We have to remember that most Sunni Muslims and at least when I was coming in to discuss this topic I spoke to many of my friends and colleagues they don't like Dawah man mm. so I think that's the first thing to say um, and I kind of feel like the point is not too much Dawah man and you shouldn't give him we shouldn't make people who are trying to get this sort of celebrity style status in these things too much credibility it's a, there is a and just look at the broader principles of of the issue which i think if we're being you're talking about you know how you felt watching a video that he wrote about that and we have to look at the flip side of that that even some of the videos that i saw and the timing of the videos that came out in october were off the back of other videos in the Shia community that had caused upset to a lot of Sunnis. And at the end of the day, on the fringes of that, somebody like Dawaman will jump on that to to fuel fuel that fire at a time when maybe even average Sunnis who are not who don't like Dawaman will be upset about something. So what's we have to look at the broader principles we can take out of that, which is what Salim alluded to there, which is that there is a proper context of dialogue and debate, and that actually there is a difference between a speaker and a cleric, an expert and someone who's going out and doing this type of aggressive um, Dawah. I'd not watched his videos before, I watched them last night, and the beginning of the video about Shia Islam reminded me of an evangelical TV station which I won't name, um, but who they also have a very similar intro where they have the Iranian flag and um, Khomeini and Ahmadinejad, I think, at the time when I was watching it, and this kind of music and this end of times kind of thing indicate, and, and, and he represents the evangelical Muslims and, and that kind of viewpoint. But actually he doesn't represent ne neither the majority of Sunnis the same way I think uh, videos coming from Shia Muslims that might be seen divisive in the Sunni community do not represent the majority of Shia. So we have to come Definitely, with that, and, in, and, in, that we're the bulk in the middle. And 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 you and Nagus makes a good point there. And it has to be said um, that even within uh, the Shia community, uh, we see time and time again um, these these absolute I don't even know what to describe them as really um, fools. Really, you know, they 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 come out making these videos. Um, making all sorts of ludicrous accusations against 
you know, uh, you know, figures within Islam, um, completely, you know, being unsensitive to to the context that they're in, and and moreover, the the worrying thing about all of this is the fact that this is coming at a time where Muslims, not Shia Muslims, not just Sunni Muslims, not just Sufis, not just, you know, whatever sect you may uh, subscribe to. Muslims as a whole are being attacked. Islam as a whole is being attacked. Whether you're a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim, you both wear the hijab. So when a redneck comes up to you or, or some right-wing racist comes up to you, he's not going to ask you, oh, are you Shia, are you Sunni, before he attacks you or before he you know, verbally assaults you. And, and this is what we're fa- failing to see as Muslims. We're failing to see this and we're, we're kind of like you know, busy creating our own destruction. But then how do we overcome this? That's the question. Because the unfortunate reality is that social media has created a climate in which anybody can literally even put a turban on. I, I could, you know, go in a room, take a picture of myself wearing a turban. I think and then, you did that once. <laughs> <laughs> there won't be a link to that in the description. Um, but no, it's very easy for someone to do that and then create this whole persona around themselves. And, and create this character almost online, a caricature of themselves. It could be whatever they want, and that can become... What is it? There's this guy, right? Um, uh, he calls himself a Shia Muslim, uh, Brother Tawhidi, who's probably the closest thing you're going to get to, to Dawah, man, really, and on, the, on the opposite side of things. He did exactly the same thing, right? Well, a couple of years uh, in the seminary, if that. Um, and, you know, first-hand reports I know, he spent his time messing around, doing pretty much nothing there. Um... He's done exactly what you're talking about, right? And, and the worst thing is, and, and, and you're saying how, how we, we should resolve it, there's a cultural issue within the Muslim community that we literally take anyone with a big beard and, and, and a certain type of hat and, and take them as some sort of leader for ourselves. He did exactly the same thing. Tawhidi has done the same thing. Now he's got like a following. People refer to him, I've seen on Twitter, oh, Sheikh, please advise me on this. It's like, who are you even talking to? Like, But this is, I think... A 50 percent responsibility. A on the on the culprits that are taking advantage of, of this uh, and 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 kind of misleading people, but a lot of it lies on us as well. Like we shouldn't be so naive and gullible to just take anyone as our leader and take anything that they say as the truth. I think that in terms of solutions, first and foremost, we need to start being sympathetic to each other, and then trying to have an understanding of what the realities of us as Western Muslims, what we're facing. It's complex, and we have to have the same, um, some understanding of that. Uh, go to our previous podcast, and we discussed some of the complexities at the end. We were even talking about the US election and all the complexities. As, an ident- as a group of people, Western Muslims here in Britain or in America, we say- face the same problems. As a rule, I think an important start is anyone who wants to spend time dividing Muslims is wrong. So if we all collectively start a premise with that, and wherever we see it, it doesn't matter. We know that that's that's not it. And then there is another thing that kind of comes off the back of understanding what the strategy is to weaken the Muslim community as a whole, to understand that strategy, and then at the end of that, say that we will never sacrifice any of our Muslim brothers and sisters, whether they're Sunni, Shia, differ with us on opinion or not, we will never throw them under the bus of that strategy. I think at the beginning, a sympathetic point of view, and at the end, knowing that that's the red line, and in the middle, there's lots to talk about, because there's a vacuum in Western Muslim communities. 
And we have to be sympathetic and understanding when we're analysing that vacuum and that we're actually in it. It's a difficult position. And lots of people try their best and there's not enough of them. They're sincere. Lots of people are sincere. Even Dower Man. He's just getting it wrong. No, no, there, there are people, and it goes, there are people, I mean, I don't know that much of Dower Man. If there's some evidence brought to me, that's something else. There, there is a strategy and there are people who are not sincere um, I will call Majid Nawaz our second topic one of those yes. people as I said maybe it's that I don't know enough about Dawa man but you know what lots of people can be sincere and do the wrong thing we just need to know what the red lines are either way that on one end we have to always be sympathetic to our brothers and sisters and from the other way we should never throw them under the bus of a strategy outside our community in the middle of that we have as much dialogue and conversation as we want knowing that it's difficult times and there is a vacuum there's a vacuum of leadership and there's lots of reasons for that the english language just being one of them it's not all political some of it's just you know the realities of the world we live in now one of the realities of the world that we do live in and i think very you know leading on from this idea of hatred and, and all of these things all of these things happening in the muslim community majid nawaz has been listed um by the southern poverty law center as an anti-Muslim extremist. So very interesting choice of words being used there. Um, you, you had a bit of information about the Southern Poverty Law Centre. Yeah. I've never heard about it before, actually. <clears throat> They're a fantastic think tank in America born out of the civil rights movement. Um, and they do very well in um, identifying those people, let's call them the not sincere people. <laughs> They've done it very well. Um, they identified Breitbart and key figures in the far right in terms of the uh, rise of the right and the winning of Donald Trump. And they do very well in identifying, identifying those types of figures in the Muslim community as well, in America and here. They are very credible. Um, it's only the people such as Majid Nawaz who will try and discredit them. And actually, they did very well to identify him there. Yeah, I mean, he himself, he identifies himself as an activist and it comes off the back of him uh, previously in the past having a very uh, colourful history to say, you know, for best choice of words. Um, but Hasib, what, what are your thoughts on Majid Nawaz and maybe, you know, the anti-Muslim label that he's received? So a lot of my thoughts uh, regarding Majid Nawaz probably wouldn't be suitable to broadcast on a, on a podcast. Ooh, we're going to talk about this later, guys. Um, but uh, no, as in... Okay, it's nice that we've got um, a list from the Southern Poverty Law Centre um, in which they've labelled uh, Majid Nawaz um, as anti-Muslim extremist. It, it helps in the sense that, it, you know, for a long time, um, people within the Muslim community have been challenging Majid Nawaz regarding his uh, openly anti-Islamic views. Whilst he claims himself to be a Muslim, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, one of those mind games where you don't know how to kind of interpret it so this lends a little bit more weight to that the bigger issue um that 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 falls um that that covers this whole thing and it kind of ties in with the whole dawah man thing mm -hmm. and it's probably why we've agreed to do a podcast of these subjects today is that when we get to a stage where people who are not credible to lead and represent the muslim community do exactly that we end up in a problem where you get the likes of someone like Dawa Man, someone like Anjum Chowdhury, who we've just recently uh, had in the past, and you know he may come out of prison in five years' time, so he may come back again, uh, and Majid Nawaz, who have very small support collectively within the Muslim community. But they become the voice. 
Now, what is the reason for that? Is that simply because these guys are so credible? These guys have great charisma. These guys are, you know, gifted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or what? It's, it's neither, of the, neither of the above. The reality is, is that a lot of the credible members of our community are not stepping forward, are not lending their voice to the narrative and essentially paving the way for people like Majid Nawaz to to be the voice of Muslims. And just just before uh, I, I finish off, some of the things that Majid Nawaz has been saying on his LBC radio TV show, um, radio show, it, it, the mind just absolutely boggles when you've got a Muslim defending Zionism so passionately whilst at the same time chastising Muslims who stand up for their own rights as being extremists, as being what they call it, you know, small-minded and back, you know, backward thinking. But what does it say about our government then that they choose not to listen to the likes of MCB and choose, and decide that Quilliam are the spokespeople for the Muslim world if their leader has just been named on a list of anti-Muslim extremists? Does, does that make any sense to you? It's not an issue. First of all, we need to look at everything that we're just saying and we need to contextualise it to understand what's happening in Britain. The guess the gov- it's, it's not just the government. It's to understand what, you know, we were talking about what the strategy is. It's to understand what the strategy is. Um, I was having this conversation a few nights ago uh, with somebody and they jumped down my throat and I got really defensive and I started like having a really big debate with them because I used the term British Muslim and British Islam interchangeably and then they started attacking what I was saying and then I got defensive but actually at the end of it I agreed with their point which is that we need to understand that there's a difference between British Muslims and a very complex sociological um, journey that we're going on in terms of identity here in the West and this idea of a concept of British Islam and that the people that are put forward such as Majid Nawaz, he's the goalpost of what British Islam will look like. So, in our, As engineered by who? As engineered by those who think that a Muslim community in the West that subscribes to British Islam is much better than a Muslim community in the West that subscribes to Islam. And the strategy then, then everything that happens um, before that, before that goalpost, and we were talking earlier about, you know, there's two red lines. One is sympathy and one is that you don't, you don't partake in that strategy. And then there's everything in the middle. And that's where most of us exist on a spectrum. And we need to be aware that we, we, there is no credibility for Majid, Majid Nawaz, no Muslims like him. And he's a waste of space in that sense because he has, no, he has no influence on the Muslim community. But it doesn't matter because he's a goalpost. He is what the strategy wants British Muslims to be. And when we then deal with that, we have to deal with that correctly. So we can look at why we're not opening platforms for ourselves and why we're not putting credible people forward. But we need to understand the journey of what happens when you do put critical, credible people forward and that, that, that there's a lot more complexities and it's it, then it's not that simple. I, I'm not saying that to say we shouldn't try or anything. I'm saying that the existence of Majid Nawaz is very clear. I mean, it's very clear what he stands for. Mm. I, me and you will never get a show on LBC. Mm. We just won't. It really doesn't matter how many people we I represent. I think Afra's got a shot, to be honest. Oh, yeah, apparently Afra, yes. I'm yeah. quite excited about that yeah. idea. <laughs> but um, since we're talking about credible people, I think we should kind of jump into the third topic. Now, 
We're not going to say anything about Trump because you can listen to our last podcast about that one. That's free advertising. There you go. Go listen. <laughs> now, credible people, uh, President Barack Hussein Obama, who has now uh, finishing up his moments, last few months in the uh, in the White House. Um, so we kind of wanted to look at his legacy. You so, know, sorry, did Credible have a question mark after it? <laughs> of course, I kind of did it in the end. No one else could see it. But um, yeah, so what do you guys think about uh, Obama, his legacy? What has he left behind for Trump? Barack Obama, uh, I think a lot of Americans, um, and I mean Americans, specifically just Americans, uh, will have a lot of, I guess appreciation for some of the things they did there now we're talking specifically i guess a lot of the liberal groups and liberal minded um you know california new york types would really appreciate some of the things that obama tried to do and did do um as we've seen however that a majority of the country or at least a vast chunk of of america is extremely extremely displeased with some of the things that he's done and what we're looking um, at is, essentially speaking, some what did he do? And I, the way I, the way I want to kind of, I guess, gauge his pres- presidency was: <laughs> did much change under Barack Obama? If you remember uh, at the beginning of his, uh, you know, election campaign, there was this hysteria around him that oh wow things are going to be different we've got a black president ah oh, the world's going to change and even i remember buying into it a little bit and i remember you know i remember the, the day he won the election i looked at my mom and i was like mom the world's about to change and she was like get lost <laughs> nothing's nothing's changing and I was, I was just joking but you know somewhat i wasn't i was thinking to myself hold on a sec this guy might actually be very different to everyone else but he just turned out to be pretty much the same different skin color same you know persona same exact same rhetoric the same thing okay more, much more swag a lot more style great speeches um it's cool on social media too yeah exactly so he had that's cool really yeah yeah it's, it's, it's cool so is it more i guess the idea of of i was gonna say of trump oh my god the idea of um obama was was better than obama is that what you're trying to 100 percent. because in reality if, if we were to say, oh, wow, he, he stopped wars, and we, you know, we'll paint George Bush and Tony Blair as warmongers. But he probably done as much warmongering as, as any of the rest of them through drones this time. So it doesn't really change anything. But see, the important thing is, is that there's some kind of counterbalance, if you want to use that kind of phrase, in the sense that supposedly he's the one that pushed for eliminating Osama bin Laden, Gaddafi. Um, you know, he reversed some of Bush's torture policies. He, you know, things like that people look forward to and say, look at, and they say, well, you know what, he did make a difference. I don't think he made a difference internationally. I don't think the world will look at him as a particularly different president to any of the other presidents. But I think for domestic policy, as, as an American president in the context of inside America, he will be seen as one of the best presidents. He did a lot for domestic policy. He didn't have any scandals. Um, His trousers weren't found pulled down or anyone else's skirt pulled up. And, you know, it pretty much went... That's very rare. That's very rare for for an American president. So I think domestically he's got an excellent legacy and internationally people don't view it the same way. I mean, one thing that I guess he will be remembered for um, on the international scale is... Perhaps the Iran deal, um, oh, in which you know he forgot about that. Yeah, in which he pushed forward diplomacy a lot. Um, 
And even to the sanctions still haven't been lifted, Eve, though. Eve, yeah, well, they've got one, and now they're, they're definitely not going to be. Uh, so, and also, one may argue, and this has been criticised, but at the same time, you may look at it differently, is his inaction in Syria, quote unquote, because there have been covert operations and, and there has been a lot of um, uh, meddling in Syria. But in terms of boots on the ground, which is what people care about, um, like I said, it makes no difference. Mm. Um, that is somewhere where he showed restraint to a certain degree. But like I said, at the same time, he pretty much achieved the same results with, just without doing boots on the ground. Um, so not much there either. It, it's quite weird. As we were talking just now, I had this major flashback to, I think it was 2008 when he came in. And um, in his opening speech, he basically said that he was going to extend his hand out to the Arab nations um, a hand of you know dialogue and and discussion and this and that, and I think I like everyone else in the room probably bought into it at the time. I thought you know what this could be something magnificent, but unfortunately I guess what happened was he he made promises like every politician does that he couldn't live up to. So there were things like Guantanamo, shutting down Guantanamo, letting prisoners go, this and that, and these things just dragged on like they always do. And unfortunately, what scares me is that after eight years of Obama. The people then went for Trump. Just to add to what you're saying, one of the reasons that um, his promises in the early years weren't on the foreign policy level weren't um, put forward is because he had Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. I mean, he was bound, not necessarily by the Trumps, but by the Clintons. And that ties in very neatly, really, to this election that we've just seen. Because when you look at Libya, it was Clinton's baby. Mm. When we look at some of... when I remember, I, I, I can't exactly remember the year, but I remember I was still in Iran, so it's some time before 2011. Incidentally, I was in Iran when Barack Obama won in 2008. I was very critical of him, but I still cried in his inauguration for what it meant for the American people who had voted him in. I felt their emotions and their hope. I was... Then we went forward, and when you look at what he was doing in those years, I remember Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, was trying to do rapprochement with Syria, and when it broke down, she just said, well, now that they haven't agreed to the deal on the table, which included, by the way, putting um, Hezbollah and Iran to the side to be brought out from the cold, he said, she said, now we know what to do with them. And that was very much a Clinton strategy. And it was the Clinton camp of the Democratic Party that was putting that forward. And then you zoom, you zoom ahead and you see and then you wonder why she didn't win, because actually people were very much aware that she made those foreign policy blunders. And they came up again and again in the in the uh, debates when in the run up to the election. Um, it's also worthwhile noticing that it's under Obama's watch that ISIS uh, came to form. It's under Obama's watch where Islamophobia skyrocketed in America. Uh, and it's under Obama's watch where, you know, the way in which discrimination against black people is in America did not change. If, if anything, it may have got worse. So it goes to show that really and truly, uh, these polished politicians, as stylish as they may be, as charismatic as they may be, nothing really changes. And, and uh, Trump being elected as president is, is as a result of that lack of change nothing changes black people were promised so much uh, simply by having a black president it may not have even been a manifesto that oh I'm going to you know change uh, the way in which black people are treated by the police but it was a dream that black people had for such a long time African Americans had for such a long time in America that oh one day we may have a black president and they finally got it but it did nothing for them um, I was and, a big Tupac fan in my teenage years and I remember 
there is a point. But in his in one of his songs, he talks about, uh, you know, America's not ready to have a black president. Mm. And I remember in 2008 writing about this and saying, this isn't the black president of Tupac. Mm. This isn't that he was talking about. This isn't the black president of Malcolm X. Mm. We haven't got the black president that everybody was hoping yeah. to get. Now we've got some form of compromise, which might be a, a better thing than someone else. But the backlash of racist white America is that they've been so offended by a black president that they've basically gone and voted in Donald Trump, yeah. who's basically yeah. orange. I mean, he's not even yeah, white. Yeah. That's <laughs> a very interesting point. But um, hey, talking of promises, I, I give you my word to all of our listeners that um, if you do get in touch with us and name your demands, um, aka ask us to discuss certain topics, etc., do 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 get in touch with us and we promise to discuss those things so um as always connect with us get in touch with us email us on editor at the also make sure you subscribe to our podcasts until next time assalamualaikum